Listener Production. Welcome to Real Crime. This is Australian Detectives. I'm Adam Shand. My guest today was on the front line of policing in Victoria during some of the most dangerous and violent years in the 1980s and 90s, including a very famous shootout at Tullamarine Airport. George Hately left the force, he got involved in some technologies that led to a lot more people surviving police actions in introducing the taser into Australia. So it's a career in two parts, one in the force and one out of the force. Let me welcome George Hately. G'day, George. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for your time today. Yeah, that era, we look back on it now, 80s and 90s, that was the prime of your career. What was it like? The villains were bold and they were prepared to shoot police, blow them up, do all kinds of things. What was it like back then? Yeah, for a young policeman at the time, it was exciting. You know, never a dull day. And that was reflective in my career because uh, I was in a variety of areas and they're all exciting. Very interesting. I had uh, some good and bad times. Yeah, the Special Operations Group was the pinnacle of your career. That's where you stayed for a long... Would you agree with that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was there for eight years out of 18 years. Previously, I was a detective and in the surveillance unit and special duties, so very interesting times. But the SOG was, you know, we got paid to keep fit, and it's great. Yeah, but also when the shit went down, it was you guys that had to deal with it. Yeah, look, uh, a lot of people used to say to me, isn't it frightening? But, you know, we were well-resourced, well-trained, well-prepared, indifferent to the normal uniformed policeman that'd rock up to a domestic with his hands in his pocket and not prepared mentally and physically and walk into a, a horror scene and had to confront it with life-threatening situations. Okay. Right back to the beginning, you joined in 1976. Mm, 12th of July, 76. I don't know how I got in, but I wore thick socks and just made the height. And how tall are you? Uh, 5'9". What was the height? height rec- yeah, 5'9". <laughs> um, <laughs> so you on the tippy toes there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. They, uh, it was funny. We did uh, It was pretty basic in those days. Um, I had year 10 education and did an apprenticeship. Finished that, went overseas, came back and had my motorbike stolen and a policeman rocked up at the front door and I'd been an apprentice with him and first time I'd ever spoken to a policeman civilly and um, said, what's it like? And he told me and I thought... Yeah, I wouldn't mind being a PT instructor. So I joined the police force to be that and nothing else because I was into fitness in a big way. How did um, the entree to the Special Operations Group come about? Hmm. I was in the Major Crime Squad as a detective and I was due for promotion and the way the police force worked pretty much the same nowadays, you be a detective, which is a great spot, but you've got to go back to uniform, start again and work your way up to be a detective sergeant. So I wasn't a great rap for going back to uniform. And I looked at the Police Gazette and there was an advertisement for uh, the Special Operations Group. This was 1986. Nine years earlier, Chief Commissioner Mick Miller created the SOG in secret. Miller wanted a squad to conduct special operations on terrorism targets as part of a strategy to prevent attacks before they happened. The first the public knew of the SOG was three years later in the Age newspaper. 
Squad members believed to be operating in six groups have been trained in diving, climbing and marksmanship by the Army. The training includes how to jump onto city buildings from a helicopter and how to handle and defuse bombs. Several of the men work undercover. Squad members have been equipped with weapons and wear special assault uniforms. They must maintain peak physical fitness and are allowed one and a half hours of their working day to train. The squad's activities are so secret that they are not allowed to talk about them to other police. Members are known in police circles as sons of God. The nickname was a lift from the Bible. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. The squad was Australia's first full-time police tactical group and became the model for other states to follow. I thought, oh, I'll put in what you got to lose. So that night I wrapped my police ID in my wallet up in a plastic bag and ran home. And that was the start of my training. I lived about 20-odd k's away. And uh, every time I had an opportunity, I'd be doing push-ups and sit-ups and chin-ups and still didn't think I'd be you know, able to get in the SAG because they had quite a reputation for um, expertise in firearms mainly and tactics. And eventually I got to go on the course. Uh, It's a three-month course. At the time, it was very physical. And my first day on the PT session, I uh, did that. And then I uh, got changed into my running gear and ran home. And again, that was about 20-odd k's, and the PT instructors looked and thought, who's this smarty? And they looked up my address at the time and realised I was about 20-odd k's away. And I actually got lost that night, and I did more than that. um, So you'd you'd run 40 kilometres in a day? Yeah. Like a marathon? Yeah. To get to work and back? Yeah, some days, yeah. (laughs) yeah. I was addicted to running. But anyway, the next PT session, they ran me into the ground, and... Then over as I was, I could not do one more push-up, sit-up or chin-up. And um, they said, so, Mr Hately, um, you're going to run home tonight? And I said, no, sir. You know, so it was funny. Yeah, but it's also hints at, I guess, uh, psychological conditioning going on, mm. that you don't go in there as the individual, the hero. You go in there to be part of a team yep. and function as a team. How early on did you get that message? Pretty early, really early. Um, you know, one of the things they did with the physical side, because it, it was a physical course, they lined us up and said, we've got two precious items that are police department issue, and then uh, we had to sign for these things, and uh, we lined up and we grabbed two house bricks. And they stayed with us for the three months. Everywhere we went, we carried our bricks. And the funny thing was i just finished building a house, subcontracted it, did a lot of labouring with a bricky and the house of 27,000 bricks. And I thought, gee, I think I can handle these two. But they took us to our limit. One of the instructors at the end of the course said, what we did, we took you to your limit, but we showed you there was a beyond. So they'd say, do 50 push-ups. You'd do 50 push-ups. Uh, and our push-ups weren't simple push-ups. They were halfway down, halfway up, and they'd stop you. And you'd be there for quite a time. And then they'd go down and they'd go, not good enough, start again. And, you know, 50 might turn into 500, you know, at times. But they'd ask for one more all the time. Are you at your limit? Are you at your end? You'd say, uh, no, you'd never admit you were. And they'd go, OK, give us one more. And... In operational situations, you found extra strength sometimes, extra efforts. But I guess going to the Special Operations Group, you will be almost certain to be involved in all kinds of operations. How does one prepare oneself for that? Mm. Um, Fortunately, unfortunately, I'd been in a few uh, situations, shootings when I was a detective, and when I went into the SAG, I didn't realise how 
dangerous and unprepared I was because, you know, you get given a shotgun in the major crime squad and you think you're able to cope with anything. But in the SAG, it was so much training, so much preparation, so much planning. Uh, We'd planned for weeks and weeks and weeks. Yeah, and I think that resolution, the determined nature, the the whole kind of physical presence that the SOG, um, I think, wanted to project was very, very terrifying for people. (laughs) I think most people realised they should drop their guns. We did a job one time and unfortunately for the guy that, we raided, um, he died, and all the crooks in Melbourne went and uh, moved into motels that night. He was a significant crook, a guy called Frank Velastro. Velastro was part of a crew of armed robbers and thugs known as the Flemington Crew. They had a hatred for police, which would deepen over the 1980s, leading to the murder of two officers in Wall Street, South Yarra, in 1988. Velastro met his match in June 1987. What happened that night with Frank? Frank, interesting story. I was a uniformed policeman at St Kilda. I went to an assault in St Kilda Road at a hotel or club or whatever it was, and two big bouncers and the manager had their skulls fractured in a fight. When we got there, people pointed and we ran after this bloke and arrested him. A little guy, uh, he's only about five, six, five, seven, I don't know. A uh, little Sicilian guy, black beard, got him back to the police station. Hard nut. He just would not acknowledge us at all. In the end, got his name and um, charged him with the assaults, and his name was Francesco Velastro. When I looked into his background, he was a violent, one of the most violent criminals I'd ever come up against. He just got out of jail for, I think, nine years for aggravated rape, assaults, uh, wounding. He'd shot a security guard at a party. As policemen do, they look at who's getting out and they work on them. And he was in the process of selling lots of heroin and machine guns. We got the job, and his place had the two attack train dogs. Police had to get past the dogs to plant listening devices in Velastro's residence. And the BCI tech said to me, George, we need to fend off these attack dogs. And they came to us with it. Every policeman come to the SOG and think we're, you know, magicians, the way they'd want things done. And I said, yeah, no worries, I'll have a go at this. So we went out there, and sure enough, there was two a Rottweiler and a Doberman, and they were pretty angry. I'd had a bit to do with dogs, and so I climbed up in this high fence, and as I was climbing down, they couldn't wait to bite me, as I'd done with the text on previous occasions. But I was angrier. I just showed more anger and aggression than the dogs. And the two dogs looked at me and must have thought, shit, this bloke's a nutbag. And so they backed off. And I had a lump of wood with me just by the way, but they backed off and over time, they were my dogs. I'd get over the fence and say, come here and give them a treat and pat them and and they were always excited to see me and they'd uh, jump up and have a nibble at my elbows so I could play with them and play catch while the techs were putting cameras. You had inside men. Yeah, inside, absolutely. I'd say, here you go. In June 1987, the decision was taken to arrest Velastro. So on a... Very cold winter's day, we got a call out that the listening devices revealed that he was moving out, moving his drugs and guns, and they wanted to um, arrest him. So we got called down there and during the day, which isn't an ideal time in the daylight, we climbed over the back fence as we'd had planned on one of our plans to get into the place. The dog said, hello, George, all good? Oh, the dogs took off. There took was, off. I think there was eight of us, something like that, and, you know, we were probably excuting um, adrenaline. 
and we went up to the back of the house and it was a Californian bungalow with glassed in and um, we are just about to open the back door to go in and here he comes out of the toilet, which we didn't expect, and he saw us and drew a gun and the guy next to me shot him. And he was a key criminal in the criminal world and the crooks just thought that we were going to go around and do this you know, through the night which wasn't the case. It was just, you know, an arrest procedure. Yeah. At that period, I mean, you've seen the the tensions risen substantially between the police and the crooks. You'd have already had the Mad Max shootings. Mm. You'd have had the Russell Street. So when crooks got a knock on the door, they were ready for action or perceived that those on the other side were. Mm. There's a lot of criticism of Victoria Police at the time that at a certain period we were shooting more uh, than all the other states combined. Mm. I mean, I think mm. there's one famous quote about this when when asked what officer said, well, we were better shots. Yeah, look, going back, thinking about that particular quote, I found it funny at the time because I know the police officer at the time, he was an inspector, Jim Venn, and he'd been in the SAG and I knew him as a detective at the Major Crime Squad and so we were friends and I knew what he was like. And he was asked the question why so many police were shooting crooks. And when I say crooks too, there were other people who were shot. You know, the mental health aspect me- is a whole yeah, other aspect, which, oh, which, which, which rightfully was addressed. Tragic, under, yeah, yeah, tragic side of it. And uh, But unfortunately, you know, uh, lack of training, lack of preparation, coppers found themselves in corners and approached by mentally ill people and on the day they didn't have their medication. So it was unfortunate where they, you know, get shot. So mm. uh, he was asked why a uh, policeman was shooting so many people and he just a bit of a pregnant pause and he came out and said, well, we're better shots. And, you know, you might find that distasteful or, or funny or whatever, but the truth of the matter was Victoria Police were trained to be better tacticians, better prepared, better shots by former SAG officers that moved from the SAG for promotion and they'd all go out to the academy the training area and the next thing they were all former SOG members out there and as a result police officers then had the confidence to defend themselves appropriately and indifferent to when I was in the police academy we had Browning 32s that you know would bounce off a thick woolen jumper and we were told don't pull that gun out unless zingers were coming past your head meaning someone was starting to shoot you and that gave you the approval to pull your gun out. Well, that's not on. That just isn't right, you know. And we informed uniformed policemen that they need to be prepared to draw their firearm and and use it in self-defence. And that's why a lot of police officers defended themselves successfully. And the training was to shoot for the centre of the mass? Centre body mass, yeah. Police officers are limited in their training, but you train with muscle memory repetitive training and that way under stress you revert to that training and you have some sort of plan or preparation and defence mode in your training where you can react appropriately and pull your gun out and squeeze the trigger at centre body mass. Some people come out and say, why don't they shoot him in the leg? Why don't they shoot him in the arm? There was a famous shooting in America, the Miami shootings. They made a film about it and the first shot the, the coroner worked out was a fatal shot to one of the crooks and, and it was through the heart and that particular offender lasted two and a half minutes. In the meantime, he shot five FBI agents and killed two. So bullets don't always stop the real and impending threat. 
shooting people in limbs, you know, police officers don't train for that. They shoot for centre body mass because that's vital organs are there. It's a way to shock the body. You know, a lot of movies you might see or television series you might see where SWAT-type officers uh, can shoot keyhole, you know, a bullet in the same hole which is great shooting for target shooting, but the way to really uh, shock the body is to spread the shots in that centre body mass. And um, that's technically the way it's done. So, so by the early 90s, all these factors are all coalescing in your career Um, you're in the special operations group and you hear about a robbery that is going to take place you've got some seasoned arm robbers norman chops lee steve asling steve barchi these guys were top draw arm robbers lee was rumored to have been involved in the the bookie robbery of 1976 asling was very game yeah i was walking past the uh telephone in the SOG office and one of the other guys answered it and it was Steve Brown and uh, Rod Curis. So basically what they said was they reignited an investigation into an armoured vehicle that had been hijacked some 12 months or so before and they'd held the guards up, taken them to a a factory or something and uh, emptied it and taken off, got away with it and they'd laid low for 12 months and they reignited the um, investigation and, and sure enough they'd put listening devices in different areas and um, they started to get some hieroglyphic type information nothing direct but it was like you know they kept singing this song we're in the money and it got pretty famous around our office um, at times but every indication they were gearing up ready to do a job we just didn't know what it was for a long time in fact on the day it they eventually did the job. It was not a surprise, but it was a surprise that they did what they did on the day. They were looking at banks and payrolls and all sorts of things. And so what happened, the detectives engaged surveillance unit, the listening devices area, and they used us as the arrest team. And I forget how many weeks, but it was you know a couple of months that we um, were on this job. And over time, it built up more and more, and we were starting to realise the different targets they were looking at. I was a tactical sergeant at the time, team leader. So we tried to work out if they did a particular payroll or a bank, how, how they'd do it. So we looked at that particular place and we had it pretty well set out that we knew which way they were going to come in and plan that, their escape. Because this is years of experience with what I'd seen, what I'd discuss with other detectives over time and the crooks are the same when they go to jail they discuss the same sort of thing um planning robberies how to do them and you know we basically know how if they're going to do a bank robbery they're going to park car out the front their first turns left um they're not going to do a u-turn or a turn right against the traffic or anything like that that's you know what they do they looked at a bank they kept going out the airport we couldn't figure out we went and visited armor guard and spoke to the boss and said what do you got at the airport and he was puzzled he said nothing you know i said drugs because we used to escort drugs around you know opiates from tasmania to different parts as a security role we used to do um anyway so we did a lot of planning over those weeks and in in that planning we do training 
and we do the training related to what we might do. And one of the training sites were we'd roll up in a covert plumber's van, for example, and I had my crew and there was one guy driving Billy and we'd pull up pretty suddenly in training and I'd had a few eczema forward from... We didn't wear helmets in those days, but we used very high ballistic-protected baseball caps, uh, which gave us no protection at all. <laughs> but... Um, uh, so it's like a saucepan on your head sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Billy would pull up and first few times he'd pull up too quick and with the momentum I'd hit my head in the back of the van. I'd say, Billy, just sponge the brakes, not jump on them, you know. But then I had a guy behind me that would hold me in. When we slid the door open, I knew that the door could possibly slide back, you know, with Billy jumping the brakes too quick. So we prepared every little aspect. We trained, we looked at the... Worst scenario. And when we eventually did the job, carried it out, um, you know, a couple of guys turned around and said, George, it's just like training yesterday. I said, yeah, what do you expect? You know, tongue in cheek. And we were calm, we were collected and and prepared uh, for our jobs. Tullamarine Airport began to firm as a possible target for the robbers. Norman Lee was seen doing reconnaissance there, walking around in a suit and tie holding a clipboard like he was a manager. Both sides in this unfolding drama were laying their plans meticulously, knowing that one mistake could lead to failure and possibly death. OK, so the day of the job, there have been a couple of false starts. The intelligence we were getting was um, they were looking for a car to steal, a panel van with two doors at the back that opened out not your normal tailgate that dropped down, actually doors that opened up like a baker's van or something. Anyway, the surveillance guards followed them to the airport and we took up our position, which we'd planned. Cause How many officers? Oh, in excess of 50, 60, I don't know. Not just our arrest team. Our arrest team comprised of five, but we had planned for the worst scenario. And you're talking about Melbourne Airport, lots of ins and outs. But again, my experience showed that this is the way they were going to do it. And as it developed, it turned out exactly the way I thought it would. We had an uh, inner cordon and, and an outer cordon. And on the week before they pulled up, they parked in the freight base at Ansett Freight Base, if people can remember Ansett Airlines back in the day. Ansett Interstate Freight Services at Melbourne Airport was located on the spot where the Virgin Airlines Terminal 4 building stands today. In 1992, it was a big warehouse with a customer car park in front of a freight collection office. There was a row of roller doors either side, numbered 1 to 8, accessed by a service road. There was a freight forwarding place at Melbourne Airport near the terminal, not too far away, and um, they pulled up in the car park. We were probably 100 metres away watching them. Haitley's arrest team was in another car park used by couriers, diagonally opposite. There was this one bloke in the car, driver's side, Stephen Asling, no mask or anything on. And then all of a sudden he popped the bonnet and um, was looking at the engine and mucking around with that. I don't know if there was something wrong, but a good Samaritan came along and had a look too, a courier, and they're having a lovely uh, chat. It was reported later that the bandit's car trouble was real, a loose wire in the engine. With Asling stranded in front of the freight office, George Haightley was assessing his options. He had no way of knowing if the other crooks were in the van. Was this another reconnaissance mission or the real thing? So at that stage, you know, we could have arrested him for a stolen car, but 
you've got career criminals that are planning something and they'd have got a smack on the wrist and, and they would have been far, far more prepared to do something heinous. So the SOG team watched on as the courier helped Asling work on the car. And eventually they got it going and put the bonnet down and drove off. Went away and burnt the car and went back home. So a week goes, a lot of surveillance, a lot of listening happening, you know, a lot of singing of uh, we're in the money. Because on the face of it, this looked like a soft target there at the Ansett Freight Terminal with the money that they were going to sell this payroll. There weren't armed guards in there, as I understand. Yeah, look, in fairness to us, we really didn't know what was going to happen, what the target was, because armour guard people couldn't tell us, you know. There was no payrolls. What it turned out to be was cash that was going up to, I think, Mildura or someplace like that to be dropped off for ATM machines. And they talk about a million-dollar haul. There was actually $3 million in there. There was a lot, lot more money in there. They was just it? missed it, yeah. There was so only, they got a million out, but there was still $2 million left in the... My understanding, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, there was a lot of money in there. But, I mean, how many bags can you carry the crooks had planned this heist well, but there was one flaw. They didn't account for the weight of the money bags, which would critically impact their ability to escape and defend themselves. You had listening devices, you had intel going on. How much did you know about how they were going to turn up, what weapons? I know they had a .223 mounted in the back of the van. Yeah, look, we didn't know exactly what they had, but the one night the surveillance unit dropped off, they went and did an armour at a McDonald's, stole some money and stole a handgun, a three five seven revolver off a security guard. So they had that. Two days before, they did a uh, trip up to the bush. Someone they knew had a farm and they did some practice shooting. They were using machine guns, basically. The surveillance unit got as close as they could, but they could hear the rapid fire. So they were training. And I think Norman Lee was a former... Because he'd been quiet he for... A long period of time, he'd been running his dim sim factory, which I'd love to find the location of, because the story back in the day, and I don't know if this is true or not, everyone tells this story, that the crooks would bring bodies there and they'd put them through the machines and people would eat crooks in the dim sims at the footy at that time. That's why I haven't eaten meat for about 45 years. Uh, no. <laughs> what was Lee's form? I mean, he, he was supposed to have laundered money from the bookie robbery. He was supposed to have been in, tied up with all the best crooks in town. Mm. Had he been quiet or was he just too good? Look, you've got to put it this way. He was involved in some pretty high-level robberies and I think you've got to put him in a class of a very good criminal because he didn't have much form. The ones that have got form are the, the Dills. You know, they get caught all the time and they go to jail, they get out do more. Astling was a classic. He um, went in for, what, 10 years for the armed robbery, got out and then killed Kinnebarra, got caught. Asling was convicted of killing top crim Graham the Munster Kinnebra in December 2003, allegedly on the orders of drug boss Carl Williams. I mean, he's back in, hopefully he'll never get out. He's just a, um, he shouldn't be let out in the street. In part two of this story, surveillance turns into an armed confrontation at Tullamarine Airport. Executive producer, Grant Tothill. Mixing, editing and theme music by Matt Nikolic. Associate producer, Matt Dwyer. Additional editing by Kelly Falston. Research by Nolly Wei Shand. Digital producers, Jack Shand and Oscar Gordon. This has been a Real Crime production, written and produced by Adam Shand. Listener.